namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sankhang namasami Continuing the uh, Dhamma talk called Disruption Belongs, and again this is uh, from the uh, Leicester Summer School, Lumpur Sumato giving a teaching on the 8th of August 2002. A few years ago there was a controversy going on amongst the Western monks here in Europe and in Australia and Thailand on whether dependent origination Paticca Samupada was about one moment or three lifetimes. Some monks get pretty heated on, these, on this issue. If you're a person who sees things intellectually, the three lifetimes, quote-unquote, interpretation seems safer than the one moment interpretation. Now, my inclination is more towards the intuitive, so the moment, quote-unquote, is what I incline towards, because the three lifetimes thing seems rather pointless in terms of practical use. It's too fatalistic and logical as far as I'm concerned and doesn't seem to have any great importance at this moment in my life. Though to give a little bit of background, probably many of you are familiar with this um, territory, but maybe some of you are, are not. So this is um, the pattern of uh, <coughs> say conditionality that's described in the Buddha's teachings a number, uh, many, many times. And um, the... Uh, 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 the, f- the form of it is usually um, marked out in 12 stages or 12 links. And um, the, uh, um, say the interpretation that is given through the um, commentaries, particularly the Visuddhimagga, is that it refers to three different lifetimes. So the first part of the 12 refers to a past life, and then a middle part of the 12 refers to this life, and then the last part refers to a, a future life. And um, the uh, uh, but some of the teachings uh, in the in the scriptures imply that that could be the kind of pattern they're talking about you know, that is talking about uh, over different lifetimes. But other descriptions um, say emphasize or, or indicate that it's really talking about moment to moment experience. And in particularly amongst the, the forest uh, 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 meditation teachers like uh, Lumpur Cha. Uh, Ajahn Buddha Dasa and others, they would emphasize this uh, momentary uh, aspect of it. So it's describing how, um, say, the, the first link in the chain is avijja, or not seeing clearly, ignorance. And how, uh, uh, when the mind doesn't see clearly, that's the cause of, of dukkha, the cause of dis, uh, disharmony, alienation, and uh, the experience of, uh, of suffering w- within the mind. So one of uh, Lumpur Cha's um, so very uh, uh, see, um, impactful descriptions of this, or talking about dependent origination, he's uh, uh, he said it's it happens all the links of the chain happen so fast. He said it's like falling out of a tree and trying to count the branches on the way down. He said it happens so quickly. All you know is thud, ow. You know when you hit the ground, you know it hurts. And so uh, he favoured that that aspect of it. Um, 
the uh, the foremost uh, Buddhist scholar in Thailand, uh, the Tanjokun Sansomdet uh, Payuto, uh, he um, being a very thorough uh, and um, yeah, even-minded um, uh, and scholarly monk, he went through all the scriptures and all the commentaries, and he added up the number of references uh, in the, within, within the teaching uh, that uh, implied the um, the three lifetimes mode or, or the sort of past and future lives mode and how many uh, implied the momentary mode and what he found is an interesting statistic which is in his book which is called dependent origination we have many many copies in the library and around which is probably the best reference book on the subject that, uh, there is in english and he found that in the suttas two-thirds of the teachings refer to the momentary experience and one-third refer to past and future and present lives and uh, in the commentaries, it's the other way around, so that you have two-thirds refer to um, the sort of past, present, and future lives, and then one-third refer to the momentary experience. So that the, the balance is, is flipped around between the suttas and the commentaries, and the commentaries were, were sort of written um, often uh, many centuries later on. So that you find both representations uh, appearing within the, the, the canon, um, uh, but... Uh, uh, as Lumpur Sumedha is pointing out here, the issue is not, um, in, a, in, in a way, the, the particular uh, theme of the teaching, but how the mind grasps, this is the true interpretation, this is the right, <laughs> that's the wrong, I'm right, and uh, you're an idiot, and how the mind grasps a particular position and, and says, this is, uh, uh, this is right and that is wrong. And then there's a sense of, um, say, uh, belonging or ownership or, or affiliation with that particular object. So that's the, the short version <laughs> with this particular theme. The formula of dependent origination begins, ignorance conditions the karma formations. Now, what is that? Professor Gombrich, who was also present at the Leicester Summer School, he was the Bowdoin Professor of Sanskrit at the University of Oxford, and the founder of the Oxford Centre for Buddhist Studies, uh, Professor Gombrich, in his talk, was questioning why that sequence of through ignorance are conditioned the karma formations, and then through the karma formations is conditioned consciousness, uh, in Pali that is, avicca pachaya sankara, sankara pachaya vinyanang, and whether it's purely a Buddhist thing, or stolen from the Hindus, or Brahmins, or what. That can, of course, be historically interesting, but how do you use a teaching like dependent origination in terms of reflective awareness? I find it more helpful to have a teaching that you can use in the moment rather than just as something that you try to figure out intellectually. At first, probably most of us don't connect very well with the teaching of dependent origination. When I first came across it, I wondered why there was that particular sequence of first ignorance then the karma formations, then consciousness, then mind and body and the sixth sense spaces, then feeling and so on and so on. How do they connect with each other? The point is, the intellect is linear, so you have to have one at a time. Ignorance, karma formations, consciousness, because that is the limitation of the intellect. You cannot think ignorance and karma formations at the same moment. Recognize then that thinking is a limited function. It's linear and dualistic. And as long as we hold on to thinking about and analyzing the Buddha's teachings, we will always be caught in the assumptions that we make from logic, reason, 
and all the dualistic functions of the mind. In terms of ignorance, or not knowing the Dhamma, you might think, well, I know the Four Noble Truths, Dukkha, Samudaya, Niroda, Magga, suffering, the origin, cessation and path, but that's not knowing all about the Buddhist teachings, is it? Knowing the Dhamma is what? What is that right now? The Dhamma is not a thought, some kind of thing you can grasp. What is it? Show it to me. Dhamma is just a word, actually. But it is a word that includes the conditioned and the unconditioned. Everything. In that sense, then, it is a matter of knowing the Dhamma. If I don't know the Dhamma, then there is ignorance. Ignorance to me is being caught up in my own views, opinions, identities, the sense of myself as a permanent personality, thinking the material world is ultimate reality, making assumptions, having prejudices and biases and emotional habits. If I am caught up in all of that, then that is ignorance. And if I attach to ignorance, it affects everything else. So uh, uh, one thing that's uh, worth repeating is that the ordinary English word, uh, English use of the word ignorance means to not have information about something. Like you don't know how to uh, to cook a particular food or you don't know what the, the plan is for tomorrow because you haven't read the whiteboard. You, it's like not having a particular, um, say, set of, of facts about something. But the, the usage of the word ignorance in Buddhist psychology is, is quite different. And uh, it really is more accurately translated as something like unawareness or, or not being awake, not being aware, not seeing clearly. So it's not, uh, um, ignorance is not uh, not knowing about, but not rather it means not being aware, not being awake, not being mindful or, or, or wise. So it's really a different quality. So you can be fully aware of not having some information. There can be no ignorance about the fact you don't know what the plan is for tomorrow. Right? <laughs> so it's, it's not about information, it's not even about intellectual understanding, it's about the quality of, of wakefulness. And so that um, when he says uh, uh, ignorance <coughs> uh, is a matter of, of uh, not knowing the Dhamma, so if I don't know the Dhamma, then there is ignorance. So when the mind is, is caught up in a desire, in fear, in an opinion, if it's half asleep, if it's uh, reacting to a, a, a feeling of discomfort, and making that something that's solid and, and permanent and real, then in that moment there's ignorance. that Oh, this pain is bad, or that object is good, I've got to have it. And uh, it's, the mind is bought into that value system in that moment. And I even if you're the thing that the mind is buying into has some kind of validity, like, uh, that you can say uh, <coughs> that the, 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 what the mind is... is um, is grasping, you know, you can say, well, that is a good thing, you know, it's, uh, uh, <clears throat> uh, I'm, I'm on the cooking duty today and I really want to cook uh, nice food for everybody and, and that's a, a good thing. But then the way the mind can take hold of that, say, noble or generous gesture can be like, I've got to get it right, uh, I did a really bad job yesterday, what will they think of me, uh, oh, this tastes really good, everyone will love me because this is so delicious, and so that the mind takes something that is wholesome and good and, and uh, got a skillful quality to it, and yet that when there's ignorance, then it creates uh, that kind of um, selfing, if you like, or that kind of um, stressing around it. And uh, uh, one of the ways, in the late 80s uh, and early 90s, uh, Lumpur Sumato spent 
most of the winter retreat in those years, so about 88, 89, 90, uh, 91, if I remember correctly, um, most of the winter retreat he talked about uh, dependent origination. Every year it would be the, he'd be going over these teachings. And often he'd spend two or three weeks or even a month just on one section of the teaching. And so his, his sort of uh, handy-dandy, uh, easy-to-remember version of uh, avicca pachaya sankara or ignorance conditions karma formations uh, was <coughs> the, to put it into ordinary English he'd say ignorance complicates everything that's the easy way to remember it <laughs> don't have to, to recollect the Pali but just, when the mind doesn't see clearly that creates complication that uh, of also all uh, and there many and various different kinds ignorance complicates everything so and yet, you know, Lumpur Sumedho is a very, very accomplished and expansive teacher, and he really could talk for two or three weeks just about that one phrase. Ignorance complicates everything, so that uh, you'd you'd really get it, get it soaking into your bones by the uh, the end of the retreat time. So, any questions, thoughts, reflections on that? Don't be shy. Okay. So, sankara. Karma formations is another interesting word. It's a term which includes all conditions. If I start with ignorance, I come from, for example, I'm a screwed up person. And the things that come from that assumption will affect my consciousness. So then I just automatically assume that I am a screwed up person. And I shouldn't be. That I've got to work on myself, meditate for many hours, sit on a zafu, and in some way or other, unscrew the screwed upness. Uh, that gives me something to do as a person. It's quite interesting to work on yourself, to come to terms with your own problems, to rectify your own faults, to get really interested in your own history, or why you feel threatened by this or that, or why you feel insecure in particular social situations and so on. One can get fascinated with oneself because the karma formations are interesting, actually. Well, some of them are, aren't they? <clears throat> Some of them aren't. <laughs> so, inclining towards interesting karma formations, trying to live an interesting life, a life full of meaning and purpose, an exciting and fascinating life, is one way of doing it. When I was young, this was what I wanted to do. I didn't want a, a boring old life like my mother and father. The last thing I wanted was to be a businessman and get married, buy a house and pay the mortgage. I wanted an interesting life. This, is my go this was my goal when I was very young. No matter how interesting your life can get, however, you cannot sustain the interest. Interesting things are unsustainable, which is why you lose interest in them. So you have to keep looking for something else. But you cannot, in a permanent way, find anything that will keep your interest. So then, there is restlessness and constant seeking. So Lumpur is not trying to be um, critical of his, his mother and father, but uh, his dad... Uh, sold shoes in Seattle. You know, he had a little shoe shop in a hotel in Seattle. And so for the um, the kind of imaginative and adventurous young uh, Ajahn Sumato, that was the sort of the, the epitome of what he didn't want to do with his life, to be in a, a shop in a hotel selling shoes and uh, measuring out people's, <coughs> people's feet for 40 years. So thought he could uh, find something more fascinating and, and charming and uh, uh, glamorous to be doing. The meditation is not interesting, is it? We might take an interest in it to begin with, 
but the direction of meditation is generally towards what we are not really interested in, like the breath or the experience of the body. I found that sort of thing really boring. Notice the sensation on the top of your head and then, and then notice the sensation, so what? I was hoping to experience really interesting sensations in the body, but most of them were just irritating, like some itch or pain. The point is, you're directing your attention towards that which is. It is what it is, rather than uh, it is interesting. So you're learning to pay attention, to focus, to sustain, to hold to something, not because it's interesting and holds your attention, but because you are willing to hold your attention to something uninteresting. You're beginning to, to develop a kind of inner strength, a sense of being able to concentrate on something you would not ordinarily bother to notice, like the breath, sensations of the body, the experience of sitting, standing, walking or lying down. When it gets to the sound of silence, that's subtle, isn't it? Most people don't know what it is or don't notice it. It's something that has a continuity to it which you could describe as a buzz, even an irritating buzz in your ear. In some religious traditions, they make it into a kind of cosmic or primal sound. They call it Krishna's flute or the angelic chorus. It becomes more interesting if you hype it up a bit, doesn't it? Uh, and that's fair enough if it helps you to take an interest in it. The point is to learn to trust in awareness, to relax into life, in other words. And in order to do that, we need to be relaxed and at ease within ourselves. If we try too hard to hear the sound of silence, for example, we're trying to find something we conceive, and that means we're not relaxing and not noticing it. What I'm talking about is more a sense of relaxing into the present, a sense of relaxing the body, letting go of things, just letting go of all one's problems and personal difficulties, of not holding on to them or trying to fight against them, but just relaxing with them, allowing this moment to be as it is. This way of awareness is a way of allowing life to flow through you rather than going into control mode and trying to get tranquility through suppressing unpleasant, disruptive thoughts. So uh, going back to dependent origination then, the... Um, uh, what that is describing is, uh, in a sense, it's the, the fine detail of how, uh, when the mind gets caught up with, with craving, with tanha, with uh, uh, desire to, for sense pleasure, desire to get rid of, or desire to, to bec become something or be something, then that inevitably leads to this quality of dissatisfaction. So like Lumpur was saying about looking for something that's interesting. Now, in our ordinary everyday life, uh, and I lived in America for 15 years, and so being interested is not even enough. You have to be excited. Like, oh, that's exciting. And exciting equals good. There's a few Americans here, so people are familiar with this. Exciting equals good. Being interested equals good. And so it can sound like this is really nihilistic, like we're supposed to be bored, or we're supposed to be just numb or switched off, or we're just supposed to just kind of, kind of uh, <coughs> be... Um, so sort of blocking everything out. But it's not that. It, what it's talking about is how if we make being excited or interested, uh, the, the, uh, if we're giving that value, then the mind has to stay excited and stay interested in order to feel alive, in order to feel this is good, this is real life, this is something special, this is, this is valuable. And so that 
what that does, it's like being addicted to caffeine or, or, or alcohol or sugar or um, to uh, any kind of stimulant. You, you need to have your stimulant in order to feel okay. So that this is what we can call addiction, addiction to becoming, that quality of bhava-tanha. So that our sense of well-being, our sense of meaningfulness, our sense of yes, is dependent on having a constant supply of your drug of choice. Whether it's um, being busy, whether it's doing good works, whether it's consuming sugar or, ca- or tea or uh, making friends or uh, <clears throat> whatever it might be. Going to meditation retreats, you know, as he was talking about retreat junkies. That, uh, that if we haven't got a, a constant supply of our drug of choice, then we're, we're, you know, uh, uh, we feel incomplete, we feel unsatisfied and, and disturbed. So what is talking about this sense of relaxing into the present, it's dependent away on learning how to recognize that there is that addiction to becoming, that, that sense of investment in wanting to be excited, wanting to be interested. And in a sense that uh, getting to know that habit, getting to know that addiction, and choosing to break it, choosing to break free of that addiction. So dependent origination is not the ultimate reality. It's describing what happens when the mind doesn't see things clearly. It gets caught into liking, fearing, uh, ir- uh, worrying, uh, uh, getting annoyed with uh, something. And then that, that feeling of dissatisfaction comes from that. If there is awareness, if there isn't a vija, if there is vija, then that whole cycle doesn't begin. The, the mind is awake to the present and the causes for that dissatisfaction, that, uh, that addiction, uh, are not created. So the mind is in a state of wakefulness and in the, and the, the kind of wonderful and, and beautiful thing is that when the mind is uh, awake to the present, then there is the sense of satisfaction and completeness. There's no thing that needs to be got to make a me feel whole. There's no thing that needs to be got rid of to make a me feel unburdened. There's the Dhamma aware of its own nature. That's, that's what, when there is Vija, there is the mind, which is a, an attribute of nature, knowing its, uh, its own qualities, knowing itself. The mind is awake, the Dhamma is uh, awake to its own nature. And so there's a quality of peacefulness and freedom uh, and ease. As soon as the, uh, the mindfulness slips, as soon as there is uh, avijja, then as Lumpur Chah put it, it's like dropping out of a tree. Boom, suddenly you got annoyed by something, or you got caught by an attractive object or a worrying object. or a, Oh my goodness, <gasps> I'm on the cooking tomorrow. <gasps> it's after six in the evening, I haven't even thought about it. Oh no! I'm not trying to give anyone a freak out. But <laughs> I'm not reading anybody's mind. I'm just gonna, this is imaginative riffs. But um, that uh, uh, is what is, say, being described with dependent origination is h- how that process of getting lost happens and what it feels like to arrive at that lostness and that sense of incompleteness and insecurity. So what Lumpur is talking about here, that relaxing into to the present, is that ignorance complicates everything. And so when there isn't ignorance, when the mind is awake and aware, then life is supremely uncomplicated. Uh, one of the most helpful, very brief teachings in the Pali Canon is in the Anguttara Nikaya, the numerical discourses, where the Buddha uses the phrase, don't complicate the uncomplicated. Apapanchang papancheti. Don't complicate the uncomplicated. Actually, we had it on our greetings card a couple of years ago for Amravati. So that 
uh, when the mind is is awake and aware, then there is a quality of nipapancha or uncomplicatedness, and that's one of the attributes of the Buddha. Was uh, uh, even though he had a, a a vast range of knowledge and incredible abilities to see into different realms of existence, the past, the future, people's in different minds of different beings, and had an incredibly comprehensive range of knowledge, his uh, the characteristic of his mind was lack of complication. It was nipapancha, uncomplicated. So the mind was not getting caught into conceptual proliferation and uh, getting ta- entangled in like and dislike, fear and desire and so forth. So, any questions, thoughts, reflections? Yes. And so you kind of created a prison, so to say, and you operate from that. But then there's a kind of a immediate mistake, if you wish, or not, is that you've created a world, and you know the world. Yes, yeah. It's a, one easy way of describing it uh, is like the sankara, it's, uh, when, when the mind doesn't see clearly, then it creates a subject and an object. Uh, an, an agent here, even if that, the, the out there is sort of a memory or a, an inner feeling. It's still, there's this, this, this I. And even before the sort of, the, the a thinking mind goes, I think or I see, I feel, there is that, there's a, a, an, an agent, an experiencer, and then the experience is, it makes a, a so solid separate difference between a subject and object, a me here and the world out there. And then that rapidly spins into the, the attention latching onto a particular sight or a sound or a smell or a taste or a thought, and then gets caught into desiring, fearing, worrying, uh, ir- uh, getting annoyed and so on. So that that um, subject-object duality, and it can sound a bit... Um, obscure, but that sort of me here, the world there, that's, that's the basic mistake. That there's this, this solid, separate individual I, who's the, the, the doer, the experience of the knower, and there's a that. There's a this here, which is the, the experiencer, the subject, and then there's a that there, which is the, the, the object, and then there's this, the dynamic between them, and then it's me talking to you, or me in here and the world out there. And then uh, as long as ignorance has uh, strength, uh, then that will seem to be an inarguable reality. I am this person. This is my name. This is where I live. This is my story. This is my... And, uh, <clears throat> and that is taken as a, an absolute truth. So I like to use the phrase, a convenient fiction. So I can say, yeah, uh, uh, my name is Ajahn Amaro. But uh, as I, uh, that's not necessarily the case. Like to my sisters, I'm not Ajahn Amaro. I'm their brother. So they, I mean, they call me Amaro, but uh, I don't sit in their minds in the same way that I sit in your minds. You know, to, to people here, I'm the Abbot of Amaravati, I'm Ajahn Amaro, and that's the sort of the role that this uh, set of objects plays in, in your minds. But uh, my sisters, who grew up with me, and we, uh, we have a whole set of, of relationships and history, then uh, they see it in a different way. So it's not like this version is right and that version is wrong, but that uh, me being a brother is a convenient fiction. Me being an abbot is a convenient fiction. Yeah. <clears throat> the 
your name gets put up on the board if you're in the lay support team, and, oh, I'm on the washing up. I'm a washer-upper. <laughs> that's, that, that's who I am today. And then the next day, oh, I've got a day off. I'm, that's, that's what I am today. I, I've got a, I'm a person with a free day. That's, that's who I am. These are all convenient fictions. Our names, our ages, our nationalities, uh, all of these attributes that seem to be so, so solid and real, that uh, some of them have a foundation in external reality, like a passport with a number on it, <laughs> you know, social security number and so on. Um, but uh, essentially, all of them are convenient fictions. Okay, you've got a passport with a number on it, that's only an agreement that's, t- that's picked up by a group of bureaucrats who, who issue passports. <laughs> it, there's, no, there's no thing absolutely there. So the more that the mind can recognize that we, it's experiencing a set of convenient fictions, that the, like we were saying yesterday, that the, there's a transparency to the, the, the world, and that the, it's not a, a separate individual independent I who's the, uh, the owner of this world or the, the one who's, uh, who's, who is the knower of it, but that there is knowing, that there's this mind which is awake, and that sense of I and me and mine is, is also let go of, then that, that ignorance is, is dispelled at that point. That, that kind of blurriness or cloudedness, that lack of clear seeing falls away, and the mind knows, oh, this is a, a set of convenient fictions, that then this, uh, 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 the, when that is clearly recognized, then this life that we have can be used for the best purposes possible. It can be used in a, in a skillful way because the, <coughs> the perceptions of like and dislike, fear and desire, uh, gaining and losing, and uh, happiness and unhappiness and so forth, they're all seen in their true light. They're seen in a, in a valid perspective without the bias of, uh, of attachment and of, uh, uh, of uh, fear and desire and, and aversion and so forth. The more they're, they're seen free of those kind of biases, what are called the, the agati. So the, that's why Lumpur, basically every Dhamma talk he says the same thing, which is like, wake up, 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 wake up. That's the teaching, it's all, all kinds of different ways of saying, wake up. Meditation, then, is not paying attention in the sense of attention, like a military command. It's more like learning to be fully with the present. You don't have to pay attention to anything except this present moment. So there is this general sense of openness and receptivity rather than of striving to get things and controlling the mind. With mindfulness of breathing, for example, the point is to relax into the breath rather than pay attention to your breath, inhalation, exhalation, left, right, left, right. That's how I used to do it. I used to sit and just force my attention onto the inhalation and exhalation. That can be hard work, and you always fail in the end because there is no sustaining anything very long with that kind of attitude. The attitude I'm now encouraging is one of faith or trust, of being at ease and feeling safe. In this position of being the meditation teacher, people sometimes project onto me this idea that I am judging them. And they don't feel safe around me. They think, Ajahn Sumedha is looking at me. 
The situation brings up a kind of fear of being judged in some way. But recognize that meditation is not about making yourself live up to a high standard of physical conduct and practice in order to be a good meditator and please the master. If you see me as the meditation teacher, quote unquote, you can be aware of that. But then let go of the assumption that I'm here to set you straight, to chastise you, to punish you when you're not doing it right, or to reward you when you are. Reward and punishment are part of our culture, aren't they? We're brought up on it. We're used to being rewarded for being good, punished for being bad. We're used to being rejected and looked down on if we're stupid and raised up and praised if we're intelligent. This is a cultural acquisition and we have to deal with it in our lives. So we also bring that into our meditation. Relaxing, trusting and being open is a way of moving away from ignorance. I'm not asking you to believe in this, but simply suggesting that right understanding, vicha, is not far away from you. It's not something that can only be achieved after many years of real meditation practice. If you hold to the idea that really practicing hard will bring you to right understanding and away from ignorance, you know, I'll be wise rather than ignorant, and that is how you're going to interpret your experience. What I'm encouraging you to do, however, is to recognize the attitudes that affect this present moment. The assumptions you make may be about being an ignorant, unenlightened person who has to become an enlightened one. Not to say that you shouldn't think like that, there's no judgment in this, but I am suggesting you just notice the underlying attitude and assumption. So I'm encouraging you to trust in that which is aware. The awareness, not what you are aware of, but the awareness itself, and be that awareness. Oh, this, um, uh, this theme, again, this is uh, Lumpur has been talking about for decades and decades, that when the mind says, and, and it seems one of those things that seems very ordinary, very matter-of-fact, you know, I'm an unenlightened person, I've come to Amravati, I've become a nun, I've become a monk, I'm a lay practitioner, uh, and uh, I am unenlightened, I'm not an arahant, and I've come here so that I can work on my life in order to be enlightened in the future. Seems quite reasonable, right? It's not, not too kind of uh, complicated or or uh, con uh, controversial. Right? But what Longpo's pointing to, and has done over and over and over again, is to see, look at how the mind forms that. In that moment, it's creating this separate individual person. I am a person. And it's taking that as an indisputable fact. And this person is unenlightened. And it needs to do something now, so that in the future, it will be an enlightened person. So that it's, it's uh, the, in that moment the mind is creating the, uh, an apparent indep independent individual self that is unenlightened, and it's in that moment it's uh, say absorbed. It's been born into that thought, uh, and the the point that Lumpur is making is being that awareness that knows here is the thought uh, I am an unenlightened person. That the awareness of that thought in that moment the mind is awake. It is enlightened. That's the, the light, is that knowing, oh, here is the I am an unenlightened person thought. I am an unenlightened person. That it's just a mental formation. That which is knowing that, uh, that 
that thought, that formation, that is uh, the the awake mind. That is the the uh, enlightened mind. So that uh, when the um, uh, <coughs> when Lumpur would talk about this is again, this was back in the. Yeah, uh, in the eighties and and uh, early nineties, when he was you know, when he was teaching here, uh, he would say it's a matter of changing the paradigm from I'm an I'm an unenlightened person uh, who has to do something now to become enlightened in the future. To uh, and uh, here is my here is my mind. Uh, I've got to work on my problems uh, so that I'll have no problems and be enlightened in the future. So we change the paradigm from. Uh, me and my problems to the Buddha mind, the awake mind, seeing the way things are. To change the paradigm from I'm an unenlightened person to being awake now. And to see that the person, <coughs> you know, the, the, the mind is not a person. That the, the aware mind sees personhood, personness, those personal qualities of being a woman, being a man, being old, being young, our, our sensations, our perceptions, our age, our nationality, our different thoughts and emotions, that which knows the person is not a person. that make sense? That awareness is not a person. It's not personal. Uh, so that the, <coughs> that which knows the person is not a person. <laughs> that which knows these personal qualities of being a monk, being a layperson, being a woman, being a man, the, that which knows masculinity is not male. Uh, that which knows femininity is not female. Uh, that which knows... Uh, Theravadan Buddhism is not a Theravadan Buddhist. <laughs> this, that awareness is free of those limitations and characteristics. It's just awake. It's aware. And so that that which knows... The, and you can take a little phrase like that. Yesterday we were talking about taking a single, simple phrase. And I, I like to do this a lot with my own practice, to say, take a phrase like, that which knows the person is not a person, or the, the mind is not a person. And just keep... Recollecting that in those moments when the mind says, "Well, I want, or I'm, I shouldn't, or I should, or I want to, or how can he do that?" <laughs> that to to let the mind relax and to know, "Oh, this is the I shouldn't be that way, or I want to be the other way, or how come she's this way, or I wish he was like that," uh, and to to see, "Oh, here's the the mind is creating a person. It's creating this person. It's creating other people, and that which knows this person, that which knows other people." It's not personal. It's not. It's not uh, who and what we are. It's just the quality of awareness in and of itself. Does that make sense? Not easy to do, but it's the the uh, as they say the only game in town. <laughs> when people attend meditation retreats at Amravati, they take the eight precepts. Now. This, in some ways, establishes a zone of safety, a sense of how we're going to live together as a group during a 10-day retreat. People don't usually want to go on a meditation retreat in order to talk and socialize, to chit-chat and entertain each other. They are seeking encouragement to look inwards. So, we keep the noble silence. This gives us a sense of not having to be at our best. In a social atmosphere, you want to present a good face to the public and enjoy the social scene. But, on a meditation retreat, that's not expected. So, in a way, that is a relief, isn't it? I find it quite nice to be in a group of people that you can just sit with and who in many ways support you without making any kind of social demands. There's a sense of safety in that, a sense of being able to trust. So no one learns 
So, so one learns how to relax, to open, to receive, to be here and now. At least this is the constant kind of advice and instruction that is given. How do you deal with the physical pain or emotional stress that comes during that time? It's not a question of fighting or killing the satanic forces, is it? It's more about learning to trust in your awareness and being able to let go of conditions. You're changing from that worldly attitude of wanting to control, wanting to get rid of the bad, wanting to kill off the pests, wanting to hold on to the good and protect yourself from all the unsafe possibilities around you, to trusting in awareness. I sometimes teach in Thailand, and it's interesting to see the difference between teaching there and in Britain. In a Buddhist country, people already have a tremendous faith in Buddha Dhamma Sangha. They might not know anything about Buddhism per se. Their ideas might simply be about how their grandmothers take food to the monks on the full moon days and so on. But because Buddhism is a part of Thai culture, they seem to have an intuitive sense of Buddha Dhamma Sangha and the moral precepts. And they have a lot of faith in the Ajahns and the teachers. So when you talk to them about Buddha Dhamma Sangha, you don't have to define it very much. There's already a basic level of acceptance, receptivity and trust. In the West, on the other hand, where Buddhism is fairly new, that faith is not present. Here, the cultural conditioning is more towards reward and punishment. So you all look at me and you don't know what I'm about. Maybe you've heard terrible stories about gurus that take advantage of their students. There's a lot of gossip in the Buddhist world. The scandals can be big news, spicy, interesting and horrible. So, can you really trust me? Are you going to put yourself in my hands for 10 days? If there's a level of suspicion and insecurity present, I encourage you to relax, simply pay attention to this sense of mistrust or suspicion. I don't ask you to have faith in me as your teacher, nor do I suggest that I am an impeccable monk who will never let you down, or that you shouldn't be suspicious of me because I have all the right credentials. That is not the point, is it? It is not a question of proving that I'm trustworthy. And even if I am, sorry, even if I'm not, that wouldn't really be an obstruction to your meditation as long as you begin to trust yourself more. The point is not to ask me to be somebody who is never going to let you down, or never going to make a mistake or misunderstand you. The point is to find a strength within yourself. This is not a matter of depending on a strong teacher or somebody outside to be impeccable and an example of a Buddhist success story. Being aware of your own fears, suspicions or aversions is being aware. This is moving into understanding. It is like this. So that, uh, what he's speaking about here in terms of 10-day retreats, many of you I'm sure have done uh, these uh, kind of um, meditation sessions. And uh, part of what is supportive to that uh, looking inward and discovering your own confidence, your own strength, your own uh, independence is that uh, the quality of noble silence and not having to engage in, um, as he said, in a social way, making chit-chat and how you can, uh, as I often point out in a retreat, one of the, the aspects of a retreat that makes it very peaceful is that you don't have to be charming, you don't have to be interesting, you don't have to to be um, wondering what you're going to say to this person or that person or what they think of you. You can just be blob number three, row five, or you know, blob number eight, row two. And you can just be a sack of potatoes. You know, it's great. Uh, some people, of course, dress for a retreat and they have just the right shawl and the right cushion and they're kind of hyper-conscious of how they look. And that's, that's their own problem. 
<laughs> it's more of a Californian issue than it is. And the, in Britain, people are much more happy to be frumpy, but uh, sometimes in the, in the States, it would be a really kind of like people spending a fortune on their yoga gear and the meditation equipment. Yeah. That's the world, but um, part of the, the peacefulness and what is supporting looking inward is that sense of, of not having to perform as a person. You don't have to be a personality. You just follow the routine. Other people are doing the cooking. Sit, walk, sit, walk. Um, you, you know, Go to your, uh, your bed, lie down, have a rest, wake up, go to the chanting, go to the meditation, uh, eat your food, clean the dishes. Uh, very, very little decision-making. You don't have to have a name or a story. You don't have to be a, a school teacher or a doctor or an unemployed or a millionaire. It's just... Just remember where you left your shoes. Yeah, that's about it, really. <laughs> where did I put my umbrella? It's, it's here somewhere, and that's about it. So it's marvelously uncomplicated, and so that all helps uh, not having to perform as a person or, or engage with those social um, game playing. Helps the mind to to look inward. And to, uh, as Lung Po is saying here, not even to look at the teacher as having to be special or charming or interesting or inspiring. But the point is that the, the teacher's words and, and the guidance is helping you to find that independence, that security in your own, your own heart and to cultivate that quality of wakefulness within, uh, within each one of us. Any thoughts, questions? Ignorance affects the present moment. If I start with ignorance, I'm caught up in feeling self-conscious and suspicious or frightened and try to suppress that. Then ignorance affects my thoughts, emotions, physical body, the conditioned realm around me, and of course consciousness. So I encourage you to trust yourself to move more towards understanding, this sense of the Dhamma, this taking refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha. Experiment with it. Learn to relax. It's not a question of trying to relax. The idea of making, <coughs> making yourself relax is ridiculous, isn't it? If you say to yourself, relax, you immediately stiffen up. So it's more of an awareness of tension. If you accept the fact that you are tense and not relaxed, you will find yourself relaxing. But if you have an idea that you should be relaxed, and you should not be tense, then you create more tension. By fighting tension, you create more tension. You can drive yourself up the wall and be an absolute wreck after half an hour of trying to relax. Now the encouragement to be at ease, to relax and to trust, is not an order from above. It's a suggestion which might help you to move away from ignorance. From just adding ignorance to ignorance. You don't even have to know what understanding is. You don't have to think, have I got it? If you think about it, you'll, you'll probably think that you haven't. It's a matter of recognizing that even if you relax only a little bit, at least you are learning something. There's a kind of knowledge taking place, a kind of insight knowledge arising for you. This is not any kind of knowledge that you acquire through memorizing texts. It comes through reflection, through noticing the way it is. And noticing, as I've said before, is not criticizing. 
It's not taking a stand for or against anything. It's not that there is anything you should be thinking, feeling or doing. It's a matter of being aware of the, of the feeling that you should be more, more relaxed than you are. Okay, I'll read that again. It's a matter of being aware of the feeling that you should be more relaxed than you are. And of course, only you know when you are tense and uptight. Relax with that. Allow tension to be and see what happens. Hence, we just want to get rid of it. There is therefore always the feeling that we should not be tense and should be relaxed. The point is we have to learn from the way we are, from the kind of character we have. There is no perfect prototype human being that we should make ourselves into before we can really practice. It's a matter of learning to accept the way we are non-critically. The tensions in the body, the physical condition, the mental habits, whatever they might be, this attitude will incline towards knowledge, insight. And as you trust in this knowledge, you begin to realize that you're not creating ignorance. That ignorance, which affects your life all the time, you're not operating from a bias, from an ignorant assumption, but rather from an attitude of learning what you really are. Buddha nature is like this. Uh, another simple way that Numpur used to summarize the whole of dependent origination and cessation was if you start off with ignorance, you end up with dukkha. If you start off with wisdom, you end up with nibbana. It's also simple to, uh, to memorize. If you begin with ignorance, it leads to dukkha. If you begin with uh, awareness, wisdom, then it leads to nibbana, to peacefulness. Also, in this tense, the sense of uh, when you, you find yourself stressed and, and, and tense, then uh, as he's saying here, often the, the, the sort of the doing mind, the thinking mind will jump in. Oh, I'm really uptight. I shouldn't be. I shouldn't be so uptight. I've got to relax. 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 And so that uh, a, a, a kind of practice that I often speak, uh, uh, teach about, and, and speak to, is when you notice that uh, not just also being tense, but if you've kind of drifted off and you're, you find yourself sort of slumped over, or that you're um, you're kind of our whole system is a bit out of balance rather than, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm slumped over, I should straighten up, or, or I'm too tight, I, sh I should relax. Uh, in a way, following up what Lumpur is saying here, rather than doing anything to change the way you are, like if you're kind of slumped over, if you just bring awareness to that slumped feeling. So don't you, don't let the, the, the managing director do anything. Just don't let the controller near it. Just bring awareness to that slumped uh, quality. Or if, if you're really tense and, and rigid, don't try. Don't immediately sort of try to relax, but bring awareness to that tense feeling, and then just let the awareness have its own effect. So, as I was saying a couple of times in the last few readings, our own ability to respond is part of the way things are. Our responsivity is how it is. So what happens if you kind of notice you're all slumped over and you just let awareness be there, then what you find is that the body will straighten on its own. You can experiment with that. Not, it's very hard to fall asleep deliberately. <laughs> Most of us find opportunities arising on their own to, or to be uptight and tense. But... Uh, this is a, uh, uh, I feel, is a very, very helpful 
principle to, to develop rather than I've got to do this, I shouldn't be this way, I should be that way. To get the I element out of the picture and just see how it works so that the, in a sense bringing that light of awareness uh, into the into the room if you're if you're sort of tense and uptight it's like having a heat lamp on a knotted muscle that the muscle kind of ooh, ooh, that's better. it kind of softens and relaxes because of the effect of the heat on the muscle so it's a self-adjusting universe and the thing that helps this the the universe of your body your mind to adjust and to find a quality of balance, and so that you find yourself sitting more like a Buddha Rupa, or whether you're standing or walking, whatever you're doing, is the more that there is that uh, un- uncluttered, uh, unentangled awareness is there, then the more the system will will move to a, a quality of balance and, and integration. So y- you get out of the way <laughs> and let the universe adjust, and that the 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 agent of that change, that, that, that balancing agent, the thing that makes a difference, is that quality of, of wakeful awareness. So it's a, a self-adjusting universe, is a, a phrase you can, you can also reflect on. So, a couple more pages. The formula in the dependent origination is, ignorance conditions the karma formations of each apachaya sankara, and that affects consciousness. And then we react emotionally and interpret experience through biases. And then it always ends up at sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. Soka Parideva Dukkha Domanasupayasa. When there is ignorance of, rea- of reality, the result is always going to be some form of suffering. That is just the way it is. The point is to awaken from this ignorance. And again, I emphasize that learning to trust in awareness is the way to do it. That is where you are awake. It's not a matter of becoming somebody who's awake. It's learning to trust in the awakenedness that is natural to you. You don't have to train yourself to do this. It isn't something that you cannot do right now. You might think you can't do it, but that's another thought that you create out of ignorance. So it's always a question of learning to recognize what is present. For most of us, this might be a bit frightening because we're trusting something that we can't really get hold of what is this Buddha nature, this understanding and all that? How do I know it's there? Prove it to me. That's the cry of the skeptic, isn't it? How can you possibly trust in something when you don't even know what it is? But it isn't about defining it. It is just the simple act of trusting, relaxing, opening, receiving and being aware. As you begin to recognize that, it gives you an increasing amount of confidence and faith. So you develop faith, sadha and wisdom together. They kind of cooperate with each other. They enhance each other. That is because you're learning through experience. Some of the foreign monks at Wat Pananachat in Thailand are very much into tranquility. They have this strong idea about attaining samadhi. One of them even wants to build an underground soundproofed kuti to shut everything out. It was 26 years ago when I first established that monastery. It was 1975. And at that time, it was a fairly quiet place. There was a minor road about half a mile away, and that was it. So that minor road was the main highway between the capital of Ubon province and the capital of Sisaket province. So in those days, it was a dirt road. Uh, so it's, now it's kind of a major highway. <laughs> 
So there was a minor road about half a mile away, and that was it. But now, that minor road is a major road, and there are motorcycles and lorries going along it, making all kinds of noise. So some of the monks are saying that they have to leave Wat Pananachad, because it's no longer a peaceful place, and they can't practice there. I have, of course, been through that same kind of strong desire to attain samadhi, concentration, myself. So I do know this attitude of trying to control the environment, trying to find the perfect place away, barking dogs and aeroplanes and traffic sounds. But the world is not going to allow that. Even the Thai jungle is noisy with its insect life and so forth. There's noise everywhere. The point is, these monks are operating from a desire to attain. This is craving for existence, bhavatanha, and is one of the three desires which is not being observed. So this is ignorance conditions karma formations. They're not getting behind the desire. They're not aware of what they're actually doing and have an idea of what should be. In a good monastery, there should be no disruption, confusion or noise. Years ago, people used to say that you could never med- meditate in Bangkok because it's too noisy. There's too much distraction. And I would think, that doesn't sound right to me. You're a forest monk. You identify as a forest monk. You're saying that Bangkok is a place that you can't practice in. That doesn't sound right. If Nibbana depends on conditions supporting it, then it's just another condition, isn't it? If you have to depend on controlling the environment and everything around you in order to attain Nibbana, then Nibbana is a very unstable state, because the world is like this. This is not a tranquil, peaceful place where everything is supporting my tranquility practice, my desire for Nibbana. That word Nibbana, after all, implies that which is not dependent on conditions. Noise is a part of life. The howling of a dog or any other kind of so-called disruption belongs. Whatever is happening right now is the way it is. It belongs. It's not that it shouldn't be like this. With this understanding, then, we realize that all things enhance mindfulness rather than thinking that anything can destroy it. So, disruption belongs. So there's a very well-known, often quoted story of Lumpur Cha when he was teaching here in England. Um, there was, a, there was a, a, one of those rare hot summer evenings uh, in the, the Hampstead Vihara and the pub across the road, the Haverstock Arms, had the loud rock music playing. And uh, as I wasn't there. I was a hairy student about a mile away in, the, uh, in another part of London. Um, but uh, <coughs> Lumpur Cha apparently sat there for you know, an hour and a half while they were kind of opening the window to let the, let the place cool down. And then the music was so loud, they closed the window. The music would go quieter and then everyone would get very hot. And then they open the window and close the window, open the window, close the window. So after about an hour and a half, Lumpur rang the bell, ding. And so then, of course, being England, and then uh, everyone started apologizing. I'm so sorry, Lumpur, so sorry. It's so noisy and so uncomfortable. And, but his first, his first words were, you think the sound is annoying you. Actually, it's you that's annoying the sound. The sound is being just what it is. It's just the air vibrating. If there's annoyance, it's only coming from one place. If it's a problem, it's only coming from one place, from your mind. So you are annoying the sound, it's not the sound annoying you. So that, uh, that's also a very, very helpful uh, principle to, uh, uh, to remember. And that, um, uh, also that uh, uh, Lumpur Samedha, I don't think, is trying to just be uh, critical of monks or what. In another chart, that's a fairly, 
common condition amongst meditators uh, in, in many, many different traditions, many, many different places, and uh, how we can get so obsessed with particular conditions, we become uh, unaware of the kind of uh, difficulty, the complications we create around creating the perfect conditions. So uh, when I was in Thailand in, um, in December, uh, I was told a story about a, a Western monk who has this, this kuti in this absolutely perfect place, like in a perfect, serene environment. Um, and uh, he was, uh, it was a perfect place, it's a perfect situation. And, uh, uh, but he, dis- he had this thought that the, his walking meditation path needs to be improved. And that, uh, but he, he got so involved in the idea of making the perfect walking meditation path. And this is like in a, a really remote, extremely poor part of, this, of the countryside, not in Thailand, in another Buddhist country. And uh, he ended up you know, going to Thailand and getting a kind of architectural design for this, wa- this walking meditation path, getting ironwood, which is really expensive and really hard to work, importing ironwood from, from another country to, to be put into, into place, and then hiring craftsmen to build the walking meditation path out of ironwood. So it was about something that was going to cost about 5 million baht, which is a lot of money. <laughs> so, hmm? Five, uh, five million baht, and it's 50,000 pounds. No? 100,000 pounds? Yeah. It's some insane amount of money. Five million baht for a walking meditation path. And, uh, and, and, and he was telling me how, you know, it's, it's really kind of... Uh, so it's coming together, there's some difficulties in getting the design and getting the craftsman and getting permits for the craftsman. And it's, this is just to do walking meditation. Yeah. Your peacefulness is dependent on this kind of massive kind of international effort. And I, I, you know, I'm not someone who's lost for words very often. But I was sitting there thinking, how, how can I put this? <laughs> is there some way of saying, are you out of your tiny mind? You know, in a respectful way. Can, do I crack a joke or do I think, is it really worth that amount of money? I mean... You, you have to be, you know, uh, there must be some kind of um, mi- bit that's missing that in, in his mind that he couldn't see this, this incredible effort just to make a walking meditation path. And, uh, but that's how the mind is, you know. My, uh, each of us have our own, we can hear that and go, oh, that's crazy. But then each one of us kind of look through our own files and go, you know. Yes, well, let's not talk about that. <laughs> So each one of us has our, I'm not reading anybody's mind. So if you're thinking, how did he know? Yeah, I'm just, by the law of averages, we all have our own particular field of obsession and, and distraction. But that, uh, I think the, the theme that Lumpur's uh, making here about seeing how the mind creates complication and how it's the, uh, <clears throat> that sense of relaxing. It's not switching off, it's not dissociating. But it's a kind of relaxed alertness. So I, I know this is a, an example that annoys some people, but I'm very fond of those magic eye pictures, the, where the uh, at the surface level it looks like a kind of a blurry, repetitive, meaningless um, image, and then if you relax your vision in a certain way, you look slightly beyond the the, the level of the of the paper. Uh, and you, but you're paying attention, but it's a relaxed attention, then out of that blurry mess, 
then a three-dimensional image appears of a car or a tree or a pair of glasses or, or, or something, you know, a person sitting, a Buddha sitting there. And I, I know that some people, they, oh, don't talk about those things. But I feel, in, in a way, that uh, exemplifies a really good example of exactly the kind of attention. If you try too hard, you can't see it. If you don't try hard enough, you can't see it. If you try in just the right way, if you relax, and then you think, oh, look, it's a car. Oh, it's gone. You, know, you see it, and then you get excited, it's gone. You have to be paying attention, sustaining attention, but in a completely relaxed and non-possessive way. Then, oh, there's a tree and a car, and wow, eagles. And, and the whole three-dimensional picture appears, and then blink, and it's gone. So it's that kind of relaxed uh, alertness, uh, uh, undistracted uh, uh, and, but uh, completely easeful and relaxed alertness that Lumpo is talking about. So I think that's enough for today.